Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. Today, we're talking to Neil King. Neil King is the president of LifeWorks and executive vice president of Morneau Chappelle, a company I have a lot of history with and just really, really admire. His portfolio includes the overall management of LifeWorks employees and family assistance program and well-being business globally. So Neil is a leader who's made a huge impact in his role and someone that I've been very honored to know and spend time with. What we're talking about today is leadership wellness with a specific focus on mental health. This is an incredible conversation, and Neil's really able to expand on this topic in a way that I think is approachable to someone who's a first-time professional all the way up to a CEO role. So before our launch, I want to thank our sponsors, SE, for these wonderful microphones that they provided for us. And if you haven't yet, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. So let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. Uh, As I mentioned in the intro today, we are talking about an aspect of leadership wellness that is mental health. Uh, Our guest today, Neil King, is someone that I am very excited to hear talk about this topic. Uh, Neil and I have known each other for a long time, and I have immense respect for him as a person and as a leader. So, Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ram. I'm uh, really psyched to be here today. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for, for a few weeks now. All right, cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So huge topic. And I I love, by the way, for everyone, this was a topic of Neil's choosing and it's a big one and it's an important one, more important than ever. So around this topic, if you think about mental health in the workplace, what does that mean to you? What does that really like uh, capture? Great question. Look, when I think of mental health in the workplace, I think about society and one in four people are living with a mental health issue. And, you know, what's sad about the fact that one in four live with a mental health issue is that not all those people are getting help. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if I break my arm, you know, if I'm diagnosed with cancer, I go and get help. But yet if I'm living with a mental health issue, a lot of people, half of those people are not going to go out and seek help. Half of those people, they're not going to tell their boss. They're not going to tell their peer. They won't even tell their best friend. And so if you're living with this, this challenge, this issue, um, you're not going to be showing up at your best every single day. And that's just you, not to mention the folks that you're surrounded by that are also potentially struggling with some of the similar issues that you're dealing with at the same time. So when you say mental health in the workplace, yeah, absolutely. But it's something that, that we as society are still struggling with. Um, and in Canada, you know, I think we need to be really proud of what we've done with mental health in the workplace. We've got so many great leaders in this country now, including ourselves, but you've got Bell Canada and George Cope. Um, you've got leaders like Clara Hughes. Um, you've got other Olympic athletes that are stepping up and speaking out and saying, hey, this isn't just corporate Canada's issue. 
this is this is society's issue, and this is something that we as a, as a global society need to really address and, mm-hmm. and take care of ourselves. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, so, for any listeners who are new to the show, uh, my background is is as a therapist, and I worked in mental health and addiction for a decade. And then my transition into coaching and and corporate education is really, I still consider myself a therapist. I love to see a really strong focus on mental health taking hold in the corporate sector. I'm going to hit this from a little bit of a provocative angle, though, and I'd love to get your take as like a really successful and very thoughtful leader. When I think about mental health and how it's talked about within organizations, especially in like the public sphere, let's say on LinkedIn, it's undeniable that it's become more okay for companies to talk about it now. And it's, I'd say in, in a lot of ways, it could almost be considered like companies now positioning themselves around this stuff. There can be an element of marketing around it. Like, well, look at us. We're like a modern employer. Whereas were companies really openly talking about this, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And if certainly there were, but not as many now. And so as a business leader, why do you believe that there has been uh, this increased focus of companies talking about it and really being proactive in that space of discussion? You know, when people say it's okay to talk about this, it's, there's this been this transition of talking about mental health and support for mental health as almost a nice to have, or we should do this for our employees, right? Yeah. But here's 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 the reality, and COVID has really kind of uh, really brought this to you know to the, the spotlight here. This is something that we have to do. Mm. And, and what I say that is that if you know, if you've got a population of a thousand employees, it's your employees that are in front of your customers every single day. They're delivering your services. If I know that one quarter of them are dealing with a mental health issue and then half of that population are not seeking help, they're not being productive. Mm. There's also an element of risk. If I know that there are people that are dealing with clinical depression, if people that are dealing with anxiety, if people, and I hate to say it, are, are having suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. and they're not seeking help, you know, you've, got, you've got a risk in your population there. So I don't think this is just something that is okay to talk about. I think this is something that you have to have, that you must have, you know, in the same way that you say, like, we have to have health benefits. Mm. You know, when, when COVID hit, um, there's a lot of organizations that had to take a step back when I say organizations, we're not talking about the VPs of HRs or even the CEO. We're talking about boards of Fortune 500 companies mm-hmm. that were saying, okay, we've got mental health supports in six or seven countries, but we've got another 20, 25, 30 countries where we have nothing in place for this population. And so we've got to get something up and running yesterday because it's not good enough for us to say, yeah, this is, this is how we support our employees from a marketing perspective. This is something that has to be done so that your employees are healthy. It's as simple as that. It's the right thing to do, but also on the same token, it's the right thing to do from a business perspective. Because if you don't put these these systems or these uh, supports in place, your employees will not be at their best. They will not be productive. They will not be healthy. And as a result of that, you're putting your business at risk. I, I love what you just said, man. Like. I- because I, I try not to take a, a negative stance on it. So since I've been a coach and worked in this, in this field for about 10 years, mental health has been a part of that conversation the whole time. But I will just tell you, like, very few companies had anything robust. Like, 
it was like, oh, this is important to people. We should talk about it. And it doesn't mean it wasn't well-intentioned. But where the rubber really hits the road is how much money companies are willing to invest into this. Like, it's the same thing with diversity inclusion, the same thing with LGBTQ support within those spaces of it's nice to talk about these things and being in that space. But the difference is when companies have to invest in them, they have to build out support systems, they have to build out systems around representation and the money and time and investment it takes. That's where I've seen companies talk the talk, but absolutely not walk the walk at all, or not at all, very rarely. I've seen a big, big shift within the past few years around diversity and inclusion, around LGBTQ, and now around mental health. And mental health for me has almost been like the last holdout where a lot of companies could talk the lingo, but then I'd say like, oh, well, what kind of suicide prevention program do you have? Like, well, what kind of understanding do people have around like different mental health concerns and, and how you can support people? That's where the conversation would get super awkward. But now it seems to have changed and people really are investing and people really are oh, like walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And what I'm hearing from you is because companies are realizing now, oh, this isn't like some nice thing that we should have because people want it. This actually is about having a functional workforce and being able to invest in people in a way that's meaningful and important for this time. Is that, is that correct? hundred percent, you know, and, and there's, you know, the notion that if I put in a dollar into, into my company, whether that be for mental health support or health benefits um, or safety measures, there's, well, what's the right thing to do? And then the other aspect of it is, you know, what's the return that I'm going to get out of that as, as an organization? I hate to say it. It sounds cold. No, but that's, that's it, man. That's exactly it. So please, sorry, continue. Yeah, no. So we, so we run a mental health index where, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, they call it the baseline. The baseline of mental health in Canada was, we'll call it 75. Mm -hmm. And so today we just ran our, our, the last iteration of this. And right now we're down 11.4 uh, relative mm -hmm. to pre-pandemic. Let me break that down for you. So when we go out, we, we talk to Canadians in the corporate world. We ask them, how are you doing for with regards to anxiety? Anxiety is down 13 points. Isolation is down 11 points. Um, depression down 13 points. Work productivity down 12 points. And so that gives me a little bit of indication, okay, well, there's, there's a real severity of the crisis that we're in from a mental health aspect with, with my employees. Well, one of the things that, that I always like to do is there's, there's the numbers. I'm sorry, Neil, could I just pop in for one second just for clarity sure. for our audience? When you say down, that means they were at height. The numbers were healthier before. And by going down, uh, it doesn't mean a reduction in anxiety or depression, but it's actually saying people are becoming more depressed, more anxious. Is that correct? That's correct. From that 75% index level, you're now seeing dips in people's mental health. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, so people are more people are struggling with anxiety more so than ever. People are struggling with depression more so than ever. And, you know, we we um and so this is for me this this hits home from a numbers perspective. But where it really starts to hit home is we run a, an engagement survey, and there's a lot of organizations out there that run an engagement survey and they say, okay, we're at 82, we're at 75. And I, I got to admit, for some people, um, it hits home and it says, well, we have a really engaged workforce, or we don't have an engaged workforce. What I do every single engagement survey, and I've been doing this for as long as I can remember, is I go in and I read the comments. And we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of comments. Um, what, you, what you're going to read in the engagement survey are people's heartfelt response that's saying that they're struggling with just getting up in the morning. They're struggling to even start the workday. 
They're struggling to have a conversation with their peers. They're struggling because they have so much anxiety around what's in store for their parents who are either in living in a long-term care home or they're 78 years old and they don't want any visitors from Toronto or from Montreal or from a hot spot. Um, they're struggling with the anxiety of the health of their kids. Um, and so when you read these comments, it's, it's heart-wrenching. And so if, if people are worried about this much uh, anxiety, um, they're not going to be at their best when they're showing up into the workplace. Now, I'm not saying we can go and solve that anxiety right away. But if you don't have the supports in place to start to even address this, to, to at least give people the essence that they're, they've got some control in their lives, mm -hmm. then they're at risk. Their health is at risk. Um, and again, I, I keep kind of pointing back to the fact that you know, you've got this opportunity to really engage with your employee and help them when they need it the most. And guess what? They're going to be thankful for you. And they're actually going to be a heck of a lot more productive in the workplace. They're going to be better for the other employees. Like it's all cyclical, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if somebody is showing up to the workplace and they're depressed and they're withdrawn, you know, that's going to land on another employee and that's going to land on another employee. And then you've got this cyclical event happening in your workplace. Yeah. So from your perspective, why has the corporate world been so slow to change on this? Like, why has this stigma of speaking out this, um, you know, like, I'd say window dressing of having an approach to it. And again, not every company. I, I know uh, Morneau Chappelle was far ahead of the game on this uh, a long time ago. But I mean, I work across industries and I just see the window dressing of like mental health. But then like, oh, we don't really actually have a system. So why has there been this slow grind towards this instead of companies years ago being like, we have to have a robust program. Let's do it now. I think there's a couple of reasons. The first, first and foremost, it's stigma. You know, it's still today, like, and I would say Canada is probably among the best in the world when it comes to addressing stigma and, and outwardly talking about it, especially within corporate Canada. I've talked about society, you know, you've, you've got rock stars, you've got professional athletes, you know, hockey stars. I talked about Clara Hughes, um, but in corporate Canada that, or corporate, you know, U.S. or wherever, you've got these really strong personalities that it's almost like, well, if you have a mental health issue, suck it up. It's all about being strong, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this there's this notion that um, you know it's not necessarily disease, and that you're weak. Again, this is stigma talking here. Yeah. And I think one of the things that people have to realize is that anxiety or depression, um, this isn't a this isn't a character flaw. This is a disease, mm -hmm. much like cancer. Well, why do you why did you get cancer? I didn't pick cancer. I'm not weak. Right. It's a disease and it's the same thing with mental health. And people have to understand that this is a disease and it needs to be treated as such. Um, the other area that I think a lot of corporations have started to realize is that there's and I hate to say it, but there's actually a return on investment here. Mm -hmm. And the first part of understanding that there's a return on investment here is understanding that there's a problem and understanding the implications of the problem. Right. And so, number one, when people take off sick days. Half the time people are taking off sick days are for a non-medical reason. So that could be financial anxiety, stress, depression. Um, it could be around anxiety. It could be taking care of loved ones, um, like being a caregiver, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are, uh, I, I think the, the, the notion is that if you're the eldest daughter and you've got a sick elderly parent, you're typically the one that's going to be taking care of that, that parent. You know, the, the stats I've seen is that the, on average, people are spending 40 hours a week taking care of that parent. Mm 
And so that's going to have a tremendous impact on you. And so once corporations realize, A, that there's a significant issue with the health of our employees and the, the health and well-being of their employees, and two, if I can address that by providing supports that to, to these types of issues, knowing that I'm not going to solve these issues, but if I can support these issues, then I can actually bring people back into the workplace um, and have actually less hours at their off as a result of this, right? And so, you know, we take, st- we take surveys on, on the, the state of the employee before they call into an employee assistance program. And so we'll ask them, how many hours a week are you taking off as a result of, you know, dealing with depression around your marriage? And people will self-identify, I'm probably taking two to three hours a day off because I'm really, I'm, you know, the, the, everything that's happening with regards to my marriage is, is really upsetting me. After counseling, after getting support, after taking control of their lives, they may be still taking time off, but now it's maybe an hour a day. Maybe it's only half an hour a day. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we've also realized, and there's a study written um, down in the U.S., is that people actually under-report the number of hours that they take off as a result of the issues that they're, they're struggling with. And so it starts with stigma as to, you know, corporate candidate not wanting to address it. And where the logic comes in is like, wow, not only is this the right thing to do, but we're actually going to be better off as a company and healthier on the bottom line if we actually put in the right supports for our employees. Yeah, 100%. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting that it's, you know, it's been such a slow grind towards this. And uh, uh, something that I'm fond of saying is nothing changes if nothing changes. You know, we can sink a bunch of work or money into like doing trainings about like, oh, you know, like, here's how you give a presentation or here's how you do this or, you know, like, here's how you have a tough conversation. Those are all cool. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Where I'd say is, the amount of money sunk into wellness, like real wellness has traditionally been pretty limited. And if you try and pitch like, Hey, let's, let's do like an education series on like mental health or physical fitness or whatever. It's always kind of not always, but often fallen on these kind of like, Oh yeah, you know, I think we should get better at presentations. Really the return on investment is making sure that when people show up, they're as whole as they can be. Because that means they're going to be doing better, a better job in general, whether it's working on a project, collaborating with someone, having a tough conversation, responding to emails. If those things are all laced with like depression or anxiety or, or any other uh, aspect of mental health, they aren't going to be as effective for a company as they can be. And as simple as like a healthy and happy employee makes a functional company. I mean, that's the clearest thing that we could say. So I love to see that there is, you know, kind of like through this tough grind, getting, getting to a place where people are doing it. And let me ask you another question, though. And I, I know I'm putting you in a tough spot here. Uh, it's very rare that leaders do what you, what you did. It was like going through actual thousands of comments. And in fact, a lot of these comments, people make these comments and they're not even read by anyone. Or, you know, they're met, or maybe they're, they're read by someone who is kind of like a mid-level person. And then those comments never fully bubble up to senior leaders. It's unbelievably rare for a senior leader to be as involved in the actualization of strong mental health practices within a company as you have been. So how can we then sell to employees that this is a real thing? Like, how can we get employees to trust us as employers and say, no, we're doing this because we're actually investing in you. So what are your thoughts on that? 
How do we win the trust of employees to, to move past the fear of stigmatization? I think before it's before you even talk about investment, it's it's got to be leaders that step up and say, hey, I've been struggling with a mental health issue or somebody close to me has been struggling with a mental health issue. That's why it's so important. Like when George Cope stepped up and said, not only here am I going to put $50 million towards mental health. No, like that was unheard of. Like everybody at that point in time, they, they would address uh, you know, as I said, like cancer or diabetes or, or whatever the case is, you know, things that people can kind of, they can really kind of comprehend. Mm-hmm. So when he did that, I don't think anybody in the world had any, uh, anything like it from a mental health perspective. But he also followed that up by saying, look, I, I, I'm living with a close family member that has struggled with mental health uh, her whole life. Mm-hmm. And no one, ever, no one ever says that, right? You know, for years, and even probably still today, when someone dies uh, as a result of suicide, they say somebody suddenly passed away. Um, you know, they actually don't address it the way it is. And so the more that we have leaders that step up and say, you know, this is where I struggle with anxiety. This is where I struggle with depression. This is where a close family member, um, unfortunately, you know, they committed suicide as a result of this and their struggles. And the more sharing, you'll start to see employees buy in to the system because it's not just, well, here's the program they're putting in place for me. It's a program that they sincerely buy into. And that's, you know, when we talk about leadership, one of the things that you and I have talked about a lot is just being genuine, being sincere, being a person and not being, you know, not having this call it corporate speak. And I think that's got to be first and foremost before actual investment is made. I think the investment's needed, but you need to have all your leaders get behind this and, and really, you know, walk the talk, right? Yeah. So, man, how has this become such a, a focus for you? Uh, and again, I've known you for years, so this is something that I know has been a part of who you are as a professional for a long time. But you know, your ability to be in this, and your not just your ability, your willingness to be in this, and to be in this, what I will call a fight, like to to reduce stigma, to embrace mental health as something that we should really be focusing on within the workplace. This is something that you're involved in. How did it become such a, a focus for you? You know, I, I think it's curiosity. Mm-hmm. The more and more, like when when I first started working for this organization, I, I to be honest with you, I'd never heard of what an EAP is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, 10 years ago, if you walked out on the street and asked 10 people what an EAP was, probably 10, at least nine would say, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. And and over time, as you start to learn more and more, um, you realize just, A, how sad it is that someone could be living with a mental health issue and not even tell their best friend, not tell their mother, not tell their brother. Um, but you know, when you can actually put support in place, how much of an impact you can have on that person's life. I mean, it's, it's absolutely wild. Now you're, you're, uh, you've got a rock, uh, background, um, and you, you'll constantly hear fans of like a band like Rush, um, who kind of cater to this unique, call it, uh, you know, unique crowd. And you hear like somebody talk in their like thirties or forties about, you know, when they were 13, they were lonely and they were the outcast and they were the geek. And when they heard Rush sing and they, when they heard like some of their music and some of the, like the, we'll call it poetry that, that uh, Getty Lee would actually write about, it's like it struck a chord with them and they felt like they weren't alone. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's that kind of that feeling of connection and that, you know, if these guys can do it, I can take control of my own life. And, and quite frankly, like, that's just wildly inspirational. Right. Mm-hmm. When you can actually, address you know swaths of people out there that are struggling uh, or think that they're alone 
and you can help them. I mean, there's just there's just no greater feeling um, than being a part of something like that. And, you know, working in this industry, working in this company, you know, the things that we that we do every single day to help people be their best. Um, I mean, it's just it's absolutely astonishing. And it's uh, it's so motivational for me. So, I mean, curiosity is the thing that curiosity fed to me for, for me to actually go learn more and more and more. And the more you learn, the more you realize that what we're doing is so impactful on on, again, not just companies, but society in general. Yeah, absolutely. And to really understand the amount of impact anyone could have, you don't even have to be a senior leader by just some simple levels of education. On a topic like this, it's massive. You can save someone's life in, in just by asking how they're doing or by checking in or by being thoughtful of how you position yourself in a conversation. It's a huge thing. Learning a little can save a lot. So for our audience who may not know, um, I would love if you could explain, you know, just in general terms, what an EAP is, but also about you, like, you know, you as a professional, what you do, and then also the space that Morneau Chappelle is, uh, is um or the services that Morneau is really providing in this area, just so people can understand that. Sure. So what an EAP is, the way I sometimes describe this is, you know, you've got uh, health benefits like vision or dental um, or even massages, right? And what an EAP is, Employee Assistance Program, was, was there for, call it outsource counseling. Mm -hmm. So if you want a confidential service that you can call, or text online or, or text through an app to say, hey, I'd like to speak with a counselor. This is a benefit paid on behalf of your employer, just like you would go and, and you know get your eyes checked out. Um, and so EAP started back in probably the late 60s, I think it was. Um, Ralph Nader, I'm not sure if you remember him, he wrote this book called Unsafe at Any Speed. And it was the and it was in the auto industry at the time, the notion was is that you wouldn't buy a car built on a Friday or a Monday. Because what was happening then was that people were getting their paychecks on a Thursday night and they were drinking or they're using drugs. And so the quality of the car built on that Friday morning was terrible mm. um, or Monday morning. And so what they figured out was that there's this huge population of people that are living with addiction issues and that needed to be addressed. They didn't want to just come in and, and, and let them go. So what they determined was, is that, okay, well, they need to put, you know, addiction issues in place for these employees. What they realized is that it wasn't just an addiction issue. People were dealing with anxiety. People were dealing with depression. People were dealing with marital problems. People were dealing with financial hardships um, or financial budgeting issues. And this kind of spawned the growth of you know, the EAP as we know it today to make sure that if you take care of the employee and all of the unique aspects that are in their life, and when I may say unique aspects, it's mental health, it's their physical health, their diet. It's also, you know, uh, understanding, you know, their, their role in, uh, from a social perspective and making sure that they understand like how they can get energy off their family or their friends or their, or, or whatnot. And if you can take care of that person, that person in, in, in essence takes care of the business. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's a bit of a, bit of a history of an EAP is to, to where it is right now. Um, we, we have taken a, a further step um, and, and built what I would call well-being applications around EAP because one of the issues that we talked about earlier on was, number one, that there was a stigma uh, with getting mental health support or a stigma with, with accessing your EAP. And so what we have built is this, uh, this app that allows for recognition. So if I want to, I could recognize individual people in my uh, company by saying, hey, great presentation, great meeting you had today. 
and or if there's you know savings that people can get on perks um or if there's uh, challenges like step stepping challenges um and by doing that what you're doing is you're normalizing the use of a program like this mm. because when isolation hits its lowest point or depression hits its lowest point next Tuesday night at 10:45 at night and I don't know who to turn to I don't want to turn to my friends I don't want to turn to my wife I don't want to turn to to my mother um I've got this app here that I've been using it's normalized and maybe I'll just text with a counselor mm. right it's anonymous I can just say hey I'm really not feeling good about myself as a person right now. And I, I, I can't articulate what this means, but I know I'm at a low point. And all of a sudden you start to get this interaction, this nudge. And, you know, if it's something that can be done via chat, that's one thing. But if it's serious, maybe we establish a relationship and we get them into counseling. And so the whole notion of well-being and mental health, it all kind of kind of feeds into each other. And so what we're trying to do is normalizing this as just like, well, I've, I've, got a, I've got a back issue, so it's pretty normal for me to go see a chiropractor. It's pretty normal for me to go see my doctor, just like, you know, well, I've, I'm dealing with depression right now. It's normal for me to pick up this app or pick up the phone and say, I need help. Mm, yeah. And so for me, that, yeah, so it's EAP and well-being. We, we want to take it to a different level altogether. Yeah, I, I love that, man. And course one of the benefits of this is if uh your back is hurting you at 10 45 you're not going to be get to get a hold of a chiropractor who's going to come help you out <laughs> so of course it's, it's like a really cool system because you've got that option um so tell us a bit about what you do specifically in in this you know realm of being able to provide these services so i have the um you know i have the pleasure of actually being able to run the the division the well-being division here at Morris chapelle so we've got we've got four divisions um, you know, we are a technology enabled HR uh, provider. And so you know, we help people with their benefits, like the, you know, the physical benefits and, and uh, we help people with their retirement and pension. Um, we have a division that helps people when they're off work around short term disability and, and getting them back to worth in a healthy and, and productive way. And so my division is a global uh, team of individuals, you know, from Australia to London, uh, you know, down to Chicago and, and everywhere in between. Uh, so that we're helping corporations around the world with regards to mental health and, and helping them from a well-being perspective. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to pivot slightly. When we think about the workplace and we think about stigma and, and all these things, one of the things that I've noticed is um, being a therapist who operates as a coach is that around high performance, there's heavy stigma about looking weak. Like I don't want to look weak at all. And also many high performers do struggle with mental health concerns. It can be anxiety, it can be depression, but also, you know, there's personality disorders. There's also, there's a whole variety of different kinds of mental health that people operate with in the work world. But around high performers specifically, what I've seen is people being so guarded and so fearful of looking weak or looking bad. And there's so much stigma, not just about mental health, but in general, like taking a misstep that you've got these people that are so walled up. I don't want to look weak. I only want to look perfect. You as being someone who's like very high achiever, who's done a lot of cool stuff. And it's been a real like honor of me to be able to like walk with you um, side by side a little bit as, as I've seen you do these and then also watch you do it from afar. What advice do you have for high performers who are 
walled in so much that they can't let people know that they're struggling or that they might have a concern? I think the first thing that you need to do is be sincere to yourself, mm. right? And so any, any great leader has to have the ability to have self-reflection. So the first thing is to say, okay, here's where I see anxiety. I don't have to share it with you, Ram. I don't have to share it with, with my boss or anybody. But one thing I do have to do is understand where I get anxiety, where I get angry, where I get frustrated, um, you know, where I'm, where I'm overreacting. Um, and I think that's first and foremost. And so it's self-reflecting on a lot of different situations that you're in. Or, and, and I hate to say it, like everybody's going to go through low and high parts, right? And, and understanding that about yourself. I think that's the first. The next step is, you know, if you, if you have the ability to do so, is to share a little bit of yourself. And this for me, and this is just my style, is that if you can be sincere and genuine, especially with your team, I think that goes a long way, right? And I, I think that if you can actually show that you are a person first, a human being first, uh, then a leader, then I think you start to gain credibility uh, with the people that you're working with, right? Mm. As opposed to this, you know, buttoned up leader that says all the right things at all the right times. And first of all, there's no such thing as that. Mm -hmm. I used to, there's there's a guy that I, I went and uh, got my MBA with, uh, Paul Cummings. And I think he was like CEO of, of uh, Volvo Canada by the time he was like 35 or 36. And he just, he just really impressed me. And he was just, he was so comfortable in his own skin. And uh, I, was, I was out with him one night and I said, you know, how did you become such an executive at a young age and, and have this confidence and this persona? And I was so impressed by it. He said, you know what? He said, uh, I realized a long time ago that, that I'm just a simple car guy. And I don't need to impress upon anybody. And if people like me and they want to work with me, they're going to work with me. And if they don't, that's okay. I won't take it the wrong way. And, uh, and at the time, I was, I was kind of one of these people that I wouldn't say I had a chip on my shoulder, but you know, I, was a, I was a leader at a pretty young age. So I always felt I had to impress upon people. I had to use the right language. I had to be articulate. Um, I had to use big corporate speak, if you will. And, uh, and it really struck me is that, you know what? I am who I am. And it's just much easier just to be sincere and use simple language and connect with people. And if that works out for me, that's awesome. And if it doesn't, then maybe I'm not to work, meant to work with this organization or this company. And uh, so for me, it had a pretty profound impact. I'm not sure if I ever told Paul that story. But, uh, but anyways, yeah, I, I think about that even to this day. I, I joke with the people I work with that, I, you know, if you need to explain something to me or write something, write it at a grade six level. Um, so that way I'll really, truly understand it. And, and I'm not kidding, right? I mean, Steve Jobs was a notoriously great speaker, but he spoke at a grade six, grade seven level when he did his presentations. There's this book that, that compares him to Bill Gates. And Bill Gates probably spoke at, I don't know, grade 11 uh, level, which for him was he dumbing it down for himself, right? Mm -hmm. But he didn't connect the same way that Steve Jobs did. Steve Jobs was personable. He was himself. He was human. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, he connected with people that didn't even know him. Mm. And I think that's just so, so wild. You know, if, if you're a leader, if you can be sincere to yourself and then sincere to your team, I mean, you're, you're halfway there to being a successful uh, leader in person. All right. So this, this like too buttoned up, and I'm going to say too buttoned up too, because uh, again, I see people all over the world that I work with struggle with this. Like I can't show weakness. I, you know, I, I can't 
be myself. I hear that a lot. Like it's, it's always this interesting thing where people are like, oh, I, I, I'm authentic. And then you really get under the surface and they're like, actually, I feel like I can't be myself. Like, you know, I don't, I, I want people to like me. I want people to respect me. I want that next job. And this like lots of fear. And so, you know, we, you can see how it's easy for high performers. And when I say high performers, by the way, I don't want to differentiate that someone who would not consider themselves that maybe someone who's not like trying to push towards a CEO role that they don't themselves deal with mental health concerns. What I would say is that people in that space, um, it's hard for anyone to feel like they can be open and, and everyone would feel that there'd be a sense of stigma where I'd say more that high performers often are overtly concerned with how they're perceived. So in that space, high performers, I find, can lose themselves. They can lose who they are. And Patrick had mentioned when he was um, doing some work with you pre-call that you had a great story about Tiger Woods that, that would really address, like, how do you find yourself again in that space? So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm glad you brought up Tiger Woods. There's two things I want to say about Tiger. I would say early in his career, I didn't really like him as a professional athlete. I thought he was almost fake. Um, he had all the right answers at all the right times. Um, and, uh, as he's, as he's gotten older, um, he's become more genuine. He's become more humbled. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I think for me, you can kind of connect with this guy that's actually gone through some real downs in his life. Um, and he's being, he's being sincere. Um, but so just, just recently with, with Tiger, um, you know, he's playing at the on the back nine of the Masters, which is one of the, the biggest golf tournaments of the year. Not to mention the fact because of COVID, it's like there's no other sports going on and it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So he's the he's the Masters champion, defending champion. And so even though he's not winning the tournament, there's a ton of spotlight on him. He's he's doing all right. I think he's top ten at this point in time. He's on the back nine and he's playing on a par three. For any golfers out there, um, they would know that he took a 10 on this par three. Um, but it's not just like me taking a 10 in front of my buddies, which I'd be wildly embarrassed by, but he took a 10 at one of the biggest tournaments as one of the best golfers that have, you know, some argue say ever lived in one of the biggest tournaments on a, you know, a televised activity that's going around the world. I mean, you could potentially have just a meltdown and just get angry and frustrated, um, and lose yourself in that moment. And, you know, what, some of the things I've talked about is this concept of responding and not reacting. And the thing that just impressed the heck out of me with Tiger was that he took this 10 and then over the next six holes, he didn't just mail it in. He birdied five of the next six holes. And, you know, you're not going to win the tournament at this point in time, but this was a matter of I'm going to bounce back from this. I'm going to take this god awful experience and I'm going to grind even harder. I'm going to bear down. And I'm going to play good golf, even though that just happened. And I just, you know what? I thought that that was a great example of, of character and leader and somebody who's wildly successful because every successful person out there has just gotten their ass kicked. Mm-hmm. They have fallen down and fallen down hard to the point where they're either embarrassed or they're angry or both. Um, but to actually pick yourself up and say, okay, here's what I'm going to do to move on. Um, I thought that was a, a great story. Fun to watch. Yeah. That is a great story. I, I, would you mind if I shared something about myself that relates? Sure. So, you know, when I launched Cadence, um, 2016, brutal year for me, brutal, brutal year for me. So I, you know, kind of unceremoniously been dumped from the company that I was in in a brutal way at a, but at a point in my life where I was experiencing like a really 
sensitive, really highly sensitive, very difficult thing that was happening in my personal life. And I probably have never felt more lost in my life and really anxious, extremely depressed. And I was in a space where I was like, you know what? The only thing to do, and I was humiliated to get fired. So humiliating. I'd never thought in my life I'd get fired. I also, this other thing that has happened in my personal life was deeply humiliating and really embarrassing and, and also shocking. And I found myself just lost. I didn't know who I was anymore. And I lost just the essence of who a guy like me is. And it took me a few years to really like find myself again. And I had to go to therapy. I went to therapy for a week or every, every week for a few years. And I still continue therapy that is less dealing with those events, but still somewhat associated. But I was in a position where I had to perform. And I had, had I not performed, had I not started Cadence, had I not moved forward, I would be some guy that, you know, people are like, whatever happened to that dude? And I'll never, ever forget the sense of, I have to perform right now. I have to show up. I have to do exceptional work because I've just started my own company and I'm in a field that's clogged with other companies like mine. I have to go in and perform. I have to perform every day. I also have to find the things that differentiate me from other people. And I can't allow my, the anxiety and the depression that I'm feeling right now enter into this eight hours of work. And unfortunately, because I was starting my own business, it wasn't eight hours. It was 12 hours. It was 16 hours, whatever crazy amount I had to work. Anxiety and depression had no space in those hours. And then as soon as I was done work, that's where I could permit myself to engage with what was going on. It was the hardest thing I have ever done as a human being is walk through those couple years until I found myself again. Some of the best advice ever came from someone within Morneau Chappelle, where I, I was speaking to someone that I, I know there and I'll. They know who they are. I I'll always eternally thank them. Uh, I had said, I don't know if I should start my own business or try and work for another coaching firm. And they said, if you don't do it now, you never will. Take the, everything that's going on for you right now, all the pain, all the fear, all the anxiety. This is the moment you do it. And I'm forever grateful to this wonderful person that helped me launch Cadence uh, with that advice. So when we think of Tiger Woods, I think of that time, what it was like to walk through that. But what can we say to professionals, like high-performing professionals who like face plant, like the worst in front of everyone, horrible. And then you've got that anxiety, that fear, that depression that creeps in, but you know you still have to perform. What advice would you have for them? So you know what I wrote down as you're telling me that story? So first of all, thank you for sharing that. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. um, the, the question I wrote down as you're telling me that story is who helped you? I'm not talking about a therapy. Mm -hmm. So... And it's, it's interesting, you told me that you talked to somebody at Morneau Chappelle mm -hmm. through that time, and, and, and that, that one little connection can make a, such a massive, massive impact on you, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the hardest words to say in the English language are, I need help. Mm -hmm. People will not seek help. And so, you know, I think about your story, and a lot of people, and this kind of goes back to evolution, it's the fight, flight, or some people freeze. Everybody thinks it's fight or flight, but it's, it could be freeze. In you, you had that fight, but even with that fight, you still needed that, that some, that nudge, right? Mm -hmm. That, Hey, if you're going to do it, now's the time to do it and, and probably needed, right? I think about Tiger, my guess is, you know, his caddy at the moment said, you know what? Screw it. That just happened. You're Tiger Woods. And here's what Tiger Woods, you have birdied every single hole in this golf course, including the next six holes at one point or another. 
there's no reason why you can't do it right now. You've got absolutely nothing to lose. Let's light it up. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm, I'm pontificating here as to what he possibly said. Um, it's, it's funny. So I, I, uh, we just, my wife and I just watched, um, all the episodes of the crown. I would love to understand their writing process and, you know, cause there's, there's what you know from history, but then there's like how that they actually said, okay, how do you think that this conversation went? Right. And so the conversations that you had with your therapist, the conversations that you had with that person from Mono Chappelle, those had to be human interactions. I don't care if you're the best therapist in the world. Somebody, your therapist had a human interaction with you. I have to believe that Mm -hmm. to help you through what a horrible period in your life. And so that will stay with you for for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm, 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 I'm just absolutely thrilled that you're doing well. I mean, the, the, the funny thing is you and I met when you were with the previous company mm-hmm. and you were by far the best person, not only for that company, but the best speaker that I'd ever seen in one of these corporate events. And hence, when I needed coaching, you're the guy I reached out to because you're the guy that, that connected not just with me, but with everybody at this human level. And so I'm, I'm very thankful that, that I did reach out to you because it's been a wonderful relationship I've had through the years. So Definitely. Um, you know, thank you so much for that. And that, that question is, um, who were you talking to? Who did you ask for help? I'll never forget when I had like the hardest moment in my life and it felt like what direction I go, I called three people. And one of them I just identified, I called three people and all they had to do was not take my call. There would be no podcast. There'd be no cadence. There'd be none of these things. Three people who took my call, gave me 30 minutes of their time each, talked to me as you know, like, Hey, Oh wow, that happened. Okay. What are you going to do? How can I help? And that, how can I help question? They didn't have to write a business plan for me. You know, they didn't have to like get behind my eyes and deal with the anxiety or the fear or the depression. All they had to say is how can I help those three people launch this company? And those three people are people I'm still interacting with today. So when we're thinking about stuff like mental health or, you know, these big things that can happen in people's personal lives or their careers, the simple question of how can I help doesn't make you their therapist and it doesn't make you responsible for them. It just makes you someone who can help someone else find their way, find their path. So with that, I want to ask you, um, you know, companies right now have been scrambling to put stuff um, like mental health programs in place because of COVID and people working at home, feeling isolated, feeling stressed out. So you have mentioned you have seen some switches in, in terms of an increase in uh, people's mental health concerns. And you identified a few that were, that were more prominent. Is there anything that you think is important for our audience to hear about in terms of like what's really been on the rise and what they can do about it? So what you just talked about are, are people helping you or people helping from a mental health aspect. And so not everybody's going to reach out to an EAP. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that we are exceptional at is is teaching leaders how to be leaders within the concept of mental health and so we we actually did a a joint partnership with uh queens and bell and we produced the the first mental health leadership training it's a university accredited course Mm -hmm. and here's the thing and and before i before i kind of go into that let me let me tell you a quick story i just recently did a podcast for student works painting and if anybody's ever ran a college pro or student works painting, it's the, it's the greatest summer and the worst summer of your life. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I went into this thinking, okay, I'm going to run this painting company, but I don't need to paint, right? So I had three day crews. I had, two, I had three crews going. I had two day crews. I had a night crew. But my first job is I went into this Honda dealership 
we had to go in overnight, Saturday night. And uh, so we were ripping off the wallpaper before we had to start painting. And I guess when you rip off industrial strength wallpaper in a room where there's been, you know, years and years of exhaust, you basically rip off the, the actual drywall itself. I didn't really, like, I didn't really know. Well, is that normal? Well, I guess we'll just paint over it. It'll be fine, right? Anyways, it was a horrible disaster. I went from me making, I think it was like $1,400 in a job where my margin would have been, I don't know, $300 to I lost uh, about $1,000 out of my own pocket in wages. And oh, by the way, the owner of the Honda dealership wanted to sue me as a 20-year-old student putting myself through university. So I can't begin to describe to you the anxiety that I felt at this point in time. I didn't even like this. The, the, the summer had barely begun and already I'm dealing with somebody wanting to take, take my money. I didn't have any money to deal with just to start with. So I tell this story because um, the, the owner of Student Works Painting at the time, this guy named Chris Thompson, he was a big deal to me, right? And he was, you know, he's the guy that led all of this. And, and uh, you know, I saw him speak and, and very motivational guy. Um, he calls me up out of the blue, I don't know, about two weeks later and says, Neil, I heard that you kind of went through this, this pretty bad experience. And uh, he goes, hey, I just, I just want to come up and buy a cup of coffee. And so I'm up in Newmarket. I don't know. I think he was down in, in uh, Vaughan somewhere. And uh, I said, yeah, okay. So he drives up to Newmarket. We went, I did an estimate for uh, a couple uh, pretty close by. It's like seven o'clock in the morning. You know, we sat at their, their table. We, we talked to them about the estimate. And then he took me to McDonald's. And he had a cup of coffee with me. I still remember that cup of coffee. I still remember him taking the time to listen to me, how things were going, what I was going through as a 20-year-old, thinking to myself that I had just, just miserably failed. You know, here I am a business student, and I had, and I had failed before I even started. I, you know, I'm, just, I'm just the lowest of the low. He just, he just listened to me. He talked about some of his jobs, some of his failures. We just kind of connected. We had, a, we had a cup of coffee. And I was like, you know what? That's awesome. This guy gets it. You know, he's not considering me a failure. And I went on to have a very successful summer. And, and a result, I never, never kind of forgot that. So I bring up that story because there is, most people are not going to reach out for help. Most people are not going to call a counselor. Most people are not going to admit to themselves that there, there's an issue. And so one of the things that we believe is that as leaders, we've got to equip leaders in knowing that. And so a couple of things that we do is, you know, we teach leaders, A, how to observe, right? Listen for cues. If people are showing up late that typically don't show up late, um, if people are, you know, well-dressed, you know, always kind of buttoned up, but, but for the last three weeks, you know, their shirt's been untucked, um, they haven't combed their hair, um, they've shown up seven minutes late for most of their meetings, um, they're emotional with some of their other peers, A, understand what could be happening, observe this, write it down, but also how to have a conversation with that person, when to have a conversation with that person, how to frame the conversation. This may all seem like common sense, but it's not. Trust me, it's not. No one, no one ever gets trained on how to be a manager, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. Usually the best, you know, usually the widget manager is the person that was the best widget maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and they become a manager because the other widget manager went to another company. And so no one ever trained them on how to be a good leader. And so this mental health training, I think, is critical. And, and what it is, is actually just good leadership training how to listen, how to be curious, how to understand what's happening with your employees. Because guess what? Life does not revolve around your job 100%. It just doesn't. And so if you don't realize that, you're never going to be a great leader. 
And so this mental health training, I think, is something that's, that's not only helpful from a mental health perspective, but I think it's also, I think it's needed just to help leaders of tomorrow just be better people, better humans, um, and be more productive leaders for their own company. Yeah, I, I love that, man. That's such a well-said, uh, well-spoken, and, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is part of why the industry that I'm in exists, is that Leaders in general, they get very, very basic training. And that's understandable. Like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a challenging thing to bring people in that are unproven in the workspace and dump all of these resources into tra highly training them. I understand there's fear that they might leave, they might do this, they might do that. But at the end of the day, a lot of people who are in leadership roles really aren't very well trained in terms of how to lead. So then how can you expect them to be able to deal with the nuances of having a challenging conversation around someone's mental health and how they would position and how they talk about it? If we can't do everything, we can't, you know, train every single person to the utmost level of how to be a great leader. What I do believe is we should start with some of the most human principles is how do we keep people healthy and whole in the workplace? And I do believe that leads to just great leadership skills anyways, because so much of that is involved with asking good questions, listening, being present, being inquisitive. So you've really outlined that very well. All right. So as we're heading in towards the end of our conversation, I got a couple of questions for you that I, I wanted to uh, end off with. Um, so if you were going to give any suggestions to leaders who are like, they want to do the right thing. They want to be there for people, but they're worried like, gosh, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to do the wrong thing. Um, I don't want to become someone's therapist, nor do I want to say something and actually make someone feel worse than they already do. There seems to be a lot of anxiety about how leaders engage with this. What kind of advice would you give leaders who want to help but are fearful of doing it the wrong way? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, this is something that we address within, within the training, and, and it's on one hand, you can't ignore it. So your role as a manager is to lead a team of individuals so that they're productive. Mm -hmm. So number one, uh, you cannot ignore or just say that's not my business because it is your business if somebody's not being productive or they're disrupting the workplace. On the other extreme of that, you're not a counselor. Mm -hmm. And you should not be taking somebody out to the bar and sitting down for you know a couple of drinks and, and being their savior and solving their problems. What you can do is be a leader and say, Here's what I'm seeing. I need to ask you a couple of questions and, you know, you know, you can share as much as you feel comfortable with, but I'm seeing this is happening in the workplace. I'm seeing these observations. This is the feedback that I'm getting. Um, you know, you're a great employee. You've done these projects really well. You've got, you've got these great skill sets, but this is what I see happening as a leader in the workplace. But it's also your lead, the leader's responsibility to let them know that there's supports available, confidential supports available. That's no, it's, it, by the way, it's not me as a leader. It's what the company has put in place. So I think that the anxiety around what your role as a leader with regards to mental health is also needed, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like when somebody goes off on short-term disability, what a lot of people don't realize is that people start to feel disconnected from the workplace. And so you could be off for a hip injury. And when you go off work, all of a sudden, people just don't even reach out to you, see how you're doing, see, you know, see if, um, if you're excited to come back to work or if there's other information that you need. Just connecting with the individual in, you know, when they're off on disability, just to see how they're doing, you know, how their rehab is coming, 
um, and that, uh, you know, here's some of the things that are happening at work is really critical for someone in, in that role. And so, you know, that anxiety and that, that you know, the, the unknowingness of, of what you should be or should not be doing. Yeah, that's prevalent out there. Like we, we just have to actually lay that out in very simple terms and saying, here's your role as a leader. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think everybody's clear on that. And I think we need to do a better job of that. Yeah, it's, it's one of my passions is talking to leaders about how they can be in that space and, and just understand it's you play this part and you play that part and learn it. The main thing that I suggest to anyone, don't open up any conversation you don't know how to close back up. So the exact same way you wouldn't want a surgeon to start a surgery they didn't know how to finish, don't start a conversation that you can't close back up. Don't open up that, that space. However, that doesn't mean hide from it. Just learn how to do it. And the skills it takes to open up a conversation about mental health and to close it back up are really simple to learn if you've got someone who great who can show you how to do that. And so it sounds like you've got a fantastic program that can help people do that. Um, so two last questions. One of them is going to be a fun question. So before we get to the fun question, I wanted to ask you anything you want to leave our audience with on this topic or really any topic around um, leadership, wellness, mental health, or just around business. You know, I was, uh, I was thinking of, of different views around, you know, you've got this kind of interesting background around rock and roll and entertainment. And, um, and I always think back to leaders that, that left an impact on me. And there's this uh, gentleman by the name of Jim Fisher. Um, and he was at University of Toronto and he talked about leadership in unique ways. And I asked him, I said, what, what motivates you? Like, or what, like, where do you, where do you learn? Um, leadership principles, you know, do you read Jack Welch's book? Um, you know, do you, do you uh, go see movies? Um, do you talk to other leaders? And he says, you know what, I, I love seeing really good fiction because you can pick up leadership capabilities in movies, in music, um, in, you know, whether it could be, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, the actual lyrics in a song um, or even, even um, like great, fiction from the past. And one of the examples he gave was um, Shakespeare and his interpretation of Henry V's uh, St. Crispin's Day speech. And so it's interesting because so the St. Crispin's Day speech was the Battle of Agincourt. And, you know, Henry V's, um, his army was completely outnumbered by the French. They were sick. They were tired. They didn't have food. And they basically were about to, to get killed by this, this French army. And so what Shakespeare in his mind was like, okay, well, how would that speech have gone? And how would he have actually thought up this, with this wonderful speech? And so you know, uh, Henry V went around in disguise and he listened to what everybody was saying. And he started to understand you know, what they were worried about, but also what they were excited about and you know, what could possibly motivate them. And then when he came back and he delivered this speech, he had this understanding because he took the time to try and understand who they were as people. And he delivered to them this, this bigger purpose. And the purpose was, you know, when we get back into our country, people will raise their glasses. And even if you die on these fields, your name will live on forever. And you will be a legend to your family, to your friends until the end of time. Um, so I just thought it was pretty interesting to get motivation by all different aspects of, of life. You know, that could be within music. It could be in fiction. It could even be in movies. Um, but it, either way, it all comes back to this concept of understanding. It's about being human. 
It's about understanding the people that you're surrounding with, but then it's acting upon that and and Mm -hmm. acting in a very genuine and sincere way that's true to yourself. I love it. 100%. All right, last question, because you've brought it up a number of times. We, you know, obviously, I've got a big background in music. It's a huge part of who I am, but it's a massive part of the company. So if we're thinking about music, what are three songs for you that are about taking care of yourself? So it could be maybe songs you listen to when you're sad. It could be songs that help you rev up. It could be songs that are inspiring. It could be songs that just get you kind of like feeling, feeling like moving. What are three songs? They don't have to be your top all-time songs, but just three songs from three... It could all be from the same artist. It could be from different artists. But what three songs do you use to take care of yourself? Um, you know, so I, I grew up in through the 80s. Uh, my first concert was Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. Uh, White Snake opened for Motley Crue. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> this is when Tommy Lee was in the, the, uh, the drum set that came up over the audience. And he was like yeah. belted in. Yeah, and he yeah. was like doing 360s. So, you know, I got I to gotta pull out uh, probably Wild Side. Uh, from from Motley Crue, uh, you know, just get gets you pretty pretty jacked up. Um, Eddie Van Halen just passed away. Uh, I mean, you know, Van Halen was just such a huge uh, part of my cult, my my formative teenage music listening days. Um, you know, and he he was a guy like you talk about fight, flight, or freeze. You know, he got diagnosed with with uh, a terminal disease, and he went off to Germany, and he's going to fight it. And I think he got like an extra, extra three years as a result of it. So I think of like Panama, um, has got to come up there, you know, David Lee Roth, like at his all time, all time best. And in, in some of those costumes there, Definitely. I don't know how you can't get excited about that. Um, you know, the, the one song that comes to mind that's a little bit more recent is, um, is Soundcheck. And, uh, yeah, you know, just, it just, uh, just has like a, a great, great rhythm to it. And, you know, talks about, uh, you know, it's funny how like, all these punk rockers or rockers in general, you know, they lead these wild and crazy lives. But you know what? They all did their sound check. They still prepared because they still wanted to do well by the audience. And no matter what they did the night before, maybe most of the time, you know, they still showed up for sound check and, and made sure that they were going to deliver for, uh, for their crowds, right? Hopefully most of the time. Most of the time. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, Neil, this has been an incredible conversation. I knew it was going to be great and it was even better than I anticipated. So thank you so much for your time and everything that you do. And for anyone, uh, you know, please engage with uh, Neil on LinkedIn. He's got a great profile. has a lot of great stuff to say. Very well worth your time to pay attention to. And Neil, anything as we close off? No, Ram, this has been a pleasure. As always, you know, you've been inspirational to me. Uh, you've been inspirational to uh, to my teammates. And so I look forward to a a long and healthy uh, continued relationship. So thank you very much, Aram. Awesome. Thanks so much. Everybody, we will see you in the outro. And Dave, drop the beat. That was an incredible conversation. And, you know, I can always tell when I feel really good about a discussion I'm having when I feel comfortable sharing about myself. And, you know, Knowing Neil as well as I do, and also just respecting him so much professionally, I really felt able to speak about the uh, challenges I've had myself. So Neil, thank you so much for all of your wisdom and this great, great conversation. You know, for everyone listening, mental health has really become a topic of discussion that is out there now, and that's great. But that's really one part of it. Being able to talk about it, but then also being able to get help or help others get help. So if you're someone who's living with some mental health concerns, there's no shame in it. 
it's a totally normal thing. And the step is to not just talk about it, but to commit to getting help. For those who are friends or family members or colleagues or leaders of those who are experiencing mental health, hey, it's awesome if you create that space for them to talk about it for sure. But again, that's just one half of it. The other part is creating a pathway or identifying a pathway to helping them access services. It doesn't mean you have to be their therapist. All you've got to do is be willing to listen and help bridge from listening to getting them into the right kind of engagement. So that's it for this episode. I want to ask everyone out there to take care of yourself, take care of others, take care of the world around you, and do know we are better when we work together, when we keep those doors open, and we act with compassion. We'll see you next time on One Step Beyond. One Step! One Step!